There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we understand the impact of modern protest? That's the question for our guest today on Future Hindsight, L.A. Kaufman. She's a movement journalist and a grassroots organizer for more than 35 years. And in fact, she was the mobilizing coordinator for the massive anti-war protests of 2003 and 2004, where people in over 600 cities protested against the imminent war in Iraq. Needless to say, I was intrigued to read her book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I loved your book, and I like that you started with a historical overview of the 1963 March on Washington, which is when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And we hold it up in our current culture as a model for mass marches. And any subsequent march basically looks wanting in comparison. But it turns out it's not really what we think it was. In part, it was orchestrated by and with the Kennedy administration. What happened there? Yeah, the 63 March is an event that continues to inspire people, continues to provide hope and meaning across the decades. But it's also an event that's really gotten shrouded in myth. And when I went back into the archives and really looked closely at how the march was put together, there were quite a few things about it that surprised me. It's the first truly mass protest in U.S. history. I thought we had had massive marches before, but we we actually never had had a truly massive protest before 1963. And there was so much anxiety about the prospect of bringing such a large crowd to Washington, D.C., and so much racist anxiety about bringing such a large black crowd to Washington, D.C., that the level of cooperation with the Kennedy administration was far greater than people might imagine it was. Negotiations with the government affected pretty much everything about how the march unfolded, with the Kennedy administration very cleverly pushing for a number of choices that made it less like a protest of them and more like, you know, a grand soaring symbolic moment of pageantry. And that it was a grand pageantry. That's right. It didn't go in front of the White House and it didn't go past Congress. They purposely shifted the march route so that it wouldn't go past any institution that could be seen as an object of criticism. Instead, it went from the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial to structures that symbolized democracy, which enabled you know, the Kennedy administration, another thing that they did, although it was really a protest against them, they made a propaganda film to show uh, internationally in the wake of the march to use it as a, an example of how robust American democracy was. In fact, it worked. And I think a, a big part of modern protest is still 
the pageantry in some sense and to signal to the base the people that it represents, but also on the national stage about the importance of the movement that they've started. One of the things that surprised me the most in your book was about the signs in the 1963 protests. Tell us more about that. Yes, that was something that really startled me as someone who has studied protests and organized protests for a very long time. As soon as I discovered it, it made sense because we've all seen photographs of this famous event. And the striking thing that I discovered was that all of the signs were controlled by the march leadership. When you think about it, when you think about an image that you've seen of that march, they do have uniform signage, which you probably didn't stop to ponder how that happened. It happened because people were forbidden to bring any other signs. You could bring your own sign if it had exactly the same slogans that had been determined by the march leadership. But if you brought anything else... There was a force of 2,000 off-duty police officers and firefighters who were marshals at the march, and they would surround you, and they would take away your sign. The signs that got taken away from people were typically from really local grassroots folks who had been on the front lines of fighting for voter registration and desegregation in the South, and who had suffered terribly these hand-lettered signs that are tributes to people who were killed or beaten in the course of the civil rights struggle. So the irony there that those, those were the messages that got silenced in this quest for a unanimous message is kind of haunting, right? It is. It is haunting. And that's not the only haunting part about this protest. It's also how women were sidelined even though they were the backbone of making this possible and they were the local organizers and brought out leaflets and made sure that people actually showed up, got on the buses and do all of these things. Can you talk more about that? Yes. Then, uh, as now, it was mainly women who did the work of mobilizing, of getting people to come to the march. But the women were, were eager to have a voice in the decisions about the march. They wanted to be on the leadership bodies. They were rebuffed and they wanted to speak at the march. And up until the very last moment, the male leadership absolutely refused to have a woman speaker at the march. And they also wouldn't even let the wives of the leaders march with them. So the women were so annoyed that they went across the other side of the mall and held their own march on the other side because they were so mad that they were being asked to, you know, be several steps behind the great male leaders. And the 63 March in some ways is the epitome of, of a model of charismatic male leadership that had power, absolutely, and had power to inspire and galvanize people, but also had real limitations. Right. I don't wish to undermine the meaning and accomplishments of the march. But when we look at it closely, we can see it as this pivot point where um, you know, it, it came into being because of certain kinds of practices that now seem really outdated to us. Yes. One of the things that I learned from your book is that really women have been at the forefront and, like I said, the backbone of these protests. And when the Women's March was staged in 2017, the day after the inauguration, it was sort of this idea that women finally rose up and marched and nothing could be further from the truth. But the messaging finally is different. 
Why is that? Why was the opportunity in 2017, you think? Well, it was striking and new that the that the marches got called women's marches. And there was a real power in, in that framing that obviously resonated deeply with millions of women. In fact, it was to that point the largest single day of coordinated protest in U.S. history. There were over 650 women's marches just in the United States. The estimates hover around 5 million total for how many people participated in that nationwide mobilization. There's others who marched outside the U.S. as well. But it also represented, you know, just a remarkable surge in the ubiquity of the protest, the fact that it happened in every single state in the country, in red states and blue states. It happened in urban areas as well as rural areas. And in nearly every case, you know, you look at these relatively small communities where the women's marches happened in 2017. And in many, many cases, it's the largest protest that ever happened in that locale that's been recorded. So the the geographic spread of those marches is as significant, I think, as the overall number of marchers. I think this is in part what's fueling further marches since then. It's astounding that in the first 15 months of the current administration, between 15 and 22 million Americans took part in protest. And I think that's really new for this society in a sense, that it is now so widespread and that protest is something that we consider once more something that can be effective or can send a message. I'm going to quote you. It says here that they're less about wielding power than about gathering it. And that really really stayed with me. What does that mean? Yeah, well, you made a comment earlier about how the 63 March had worked quote unquote. And it's that concept of what does it mean for a march to work that I unpack and try to look at. The assumption that we have about protests, our idea of how protests work, we typically evaluate them as pressure tactics. And so the popular understanding about the way that the 63 March worked is that it led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65. Now, when you look back more closely at that history and how it unfolded, there's no question that the 63 March on Washington is one of many factors that contributed to those legislative successes. But if you look closely at it, it's not as automatic of a a cause and effect as we assume. And the reason I say that is because that idea of what that march did and how it succeeded has been used as a way kind of paradoxically to undermine every march since because it's evaluated by this standard that no march can meet. Because essentially what I've found when I went back and I looked there, you know, the 63 March was the first mass march in America, but it certainly was not the last. It set this model that um, I have charts in the book of all the many times that people followed in the footsteps of this model. And when you look closely at it and you look closely at these instances and you say, did these mobilizations work as pressure tactics? Across the board, the answer is, is really no. That's really not what they do. So to look at them afterwards, people march all around the country for gun control. And then, you know, two days later, there's a series of op-eds that say, will the protest change anything? Is there really going to be new gun control legislation now? Well, 
The answer is probably no. It won't immediately lead to legislative change. But that's also not how change works. And that's not how movements work. And so understanding how these mobilizations function and what contribution they make, I think it's crucial for managing people's expectations as they enter into the project of trying to participate in democracy and trying to have a voice and try to have impact. If you go to a march and you expect that it's going to lead to legislative reform in the short term and then it doesn't, you're going to be discouraged and you're not going to show up again. If you understand that these kind of marches do different work and that they can only partially be evaluated in the short term, you come at it with a different mindset. Part of what these marches do is they give people the actual palpable, bodily, lived sense of being part of something larger than themselves. That sense of being part of a movement. And that's something that's very hard to quantify in terms of its effects, even as it's evident that it's an extraordinary accomplishment to make people feel part of something larger than themselves. These huge mass mobilizations, they work as kind of movement on-ramps and as shapers of conversation and shapers of people's sense of self as they move forward in time. And when you look at that and you look at all of the grassroots groups that people formed, there were some 6,000 chapters of Indivisible that formed in just the few, first few months after the Women's Marches in 2017. That's 10 times more local groups than the Tea Party had at its height. And I think you can draw a straight line from the extraordinary levels of participation that we had in those Women's Marches in 2017, where people showed up in all these unlikely places, in contrast to the 63 March with their hand-lettered signs, with their own messages that they crafted, and the kinds of heightened levels of various kinds of civic participation that we've seen going forward. It's a way that protests work that is simultaneously difficult to pinpoint exactly in the way that you can pinpoint the passage of a piece of legislation and is extraordinarily consequential in its spillover effects. Well, it seems to me that precisely because this was decentralized, so to speak, and replicated in many cities across the country, that it was possible to have local chapters of other movements that came from the women's marches, which was almost impossible by definition from the 1963 march because it was centralized. There was only one outlet and it was all controlled on the messaging. Whereas with the women's marches, there was an opportunity to take the things that are important to you in your community and run with that. In your mind, what is an effective protest and why is it still worth protesting? There are many, many different kinds of protests. I think of them as tools in a toolbox. So different kinds of protests can be effective in very different kinds of ways in the same way that, you know, a screwdriver is going to do different work than a hammer. For instance, over the last year, I've been very involved in working with the artist and activist Nan Golden and the group Pain that she founded uh, working around the opioid crisis. We had a protest at the Guggenheim Museum in February, a very beautiful protest where we took over 
the spiral atrium and had a blizzard of mock prescriptions to echo a particularly chilling comment that was made by Richard Sackler, one of the lead executives of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, about the release of OxyContin, uh, celebrating essentially all the money they were going to make from uh, releasing this highly addictive drug. So we had banners, we had a die-in, we had this cascade of, of prescriptions. It was a beautiful, dramatic protest. There were only about 40 or 50 of us staging it. And within six weeks, not just the Guggenheim, but a series of other major museums had done exactly what we had asked, which was to refuse future funding from the Sacklers. The Sackler Foundation and the Sackler Trust had announced that they were going to cease giving for the time being. And a number of major lawsuits for the first time named individual members of the Sackler family, charging them with criminal misconduct. All these dominoes falling in a cascade six weeks after our protest, while our protest would not have had the impact that it had were it not for the pioneering work of investigative journalists who uncovered some of the Sackler family's misdeeds or the uh, many litigators who had been engaging in lawsuits. It absolutely was a case of a protest that, you know, sparked something and and raised the pressure and created a crisis that forced change. So when we talk about, you know, how to protest work, a lot of times it will be something more along the lines of raising awareness of an issue, shifting the terms of debate on an issue, um, making certain options like making Medicare for all seem possible when it hadn't previously seemed like a political possibility that was on the table. So expanding the sense of political possibility, changing the conversation, changing the terms of a debate, raising the urgency with which an issue is being addressed. Oftentimes it's these other kinds of intensification or acceleration is what you get out of protest. And it's only in those rare and magical moments that you can do you know, what happened with us at the Guggenheim this winter, where you can really see the dominoes fall after a single protest. Sometimes when you're protesting, you don't do any of those things that I just mentioned, because sometimes you're just destined to lose. You just simply don't have the power to win. You might have all the moral authority, but you're facing an unequal balance of power and you you simply don't have the capacity to win. So there are times when when protests are just what the word suggests. I mean, they're just a cry of frustration. They're just a way of registering discontent. But after doing this for many decades, I've come to see the importance of that as well. Besides making it possible for you to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, you may be laying the groundwork for future movements and for future political opportunities to actually create change. I use a phrase in in this book about protesting as an act of faith. Sometimes you protest because it's the right thing to do, and you have to hold in your heart the hope that in having done so, you're going to spark change in unpredictable ways down the road. I like that. You mentioned the asymmetry of power when you protest sometimes. How would you say people can get engaged here? I do think that, that that stepping back and having a broader understanding of what it means for protest to work helps quite a bit. I don't think that political participation that just feels sacrificial and like martyrdom works. I don't think that's sustainable. Part of the the challenge in 
political participation is finding a good fit and finding a way to get involved that feels sustaining and, if possible, joyful as kind of compensation for how challenging it is to be engaged in this sort of messy work of democracy. That's where, you know, sometimes the the carnival-like quality that big mobilizations have can be really powerful and meaningful in itself. It matters for us to find joy and humor in in each other's company. And just as I think it's important for protests to have an aesthetic to them, to be beautiful and compelling. Um, I think that those things speak to people's hearts and souls and help keep them engaged. But I think it's important for people to have realistic expectations. If you go and you join one protest calling for Trump to be impeached and he's not impeached tomorrow and you give up, you're going into it with the wrong mindset and not understanding the lessons that we've learned from many movements, which is that, you know, yeah, sometimes change comes in a quick cascade. This leads me to my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I mean, really what makes me hopeful are the number of people and especially women who have been active in this time. We're in a a terrifying moment. It's it's very scary to see the ways in which our democracy, flawed though it was to begin with, is being weakened and undermined. Hardly a week goes by that I don't look at the spreadsheet with the numbers of how many people have been in motion since Trump took office. And I think about all the people who did the really kind of boring, unglamorous work around the midterms and how much change was created as a result of that. How many new openings, how many new voters got to the polls, how many new faces we have in Congress who are doing that work of, you know, changing the terms of the political debate, changing the conversation. The scale of ordinary people's determined, steady activism in this time is what gives me hope. It's really the only thing that's going to save us. We know our leaders aren't going to save us, and we know that our institutions at this point aren't going to save us. It's going to be up to us, and it's going to be up to us finding ways to act together. And to the extent that that's happening, I find hope, and we need hope to keep moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. L.A.'s last remarks about what makes her hopeful, the boring, unglamorous work around the midterms and the new faces in Congress also give me hope. We have already seen that Washington is different, and I wonder how much different it will yet be in the coming months. Will we have an effective policy to address the climate crisis? Will we continue to see this level of activism? At the same time, I found it so refreshing to hear that sometimes protest is just a cry of frustration that can make us feel good and can make us feel a part of something larger than ourselves. It's simply good for the soul. Full stop. My favorite part was when L.A. said that protesting is an act of faith. You never know when your actions spark change. Always expect the unexpected. What is the power of nonviolence in the movement for social justice? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Julianne Hoffenberg, 
She's the Director of Operations of The Gathering for Justice, which is a social justice organization founded by Harry Belafonte in 2005. The Gathering utilizes Kingian nonviolence as a social application for change and civic engagement. The way artists collaborate, you know, you need a director and a producer and a writer, is sort of the same way that the movement works, at least from my point of view. Maybe that's just because I think of myself as a producer. You bring the message and you bring the legal mind and you get the electeds on board and you have, you know, the impacted people centering them at the front. So it's all the same sort of models or structures. It's just a matter of figuring out what your common goals are and trying to get everybody to follow that same path. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.